When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Number But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. And Flynn, we actually got to see each other in person. <laughs> yes, we did. We had we had a, a great dinner uh, in Brooklyn, and I overate, but that's nothing new. <laughs> Peter Luger, it was better than I remembered. Yeah, I'm surprised it's been that long since you've been there. But well, uh, it, it, I've lived in Los Angeles for a long time, and. Just being in New York, I think there was something about being in New York. The the energy of the city is obviously rebounding now as hopefully COVID is coming to an end. And it was it was just for me great to see my family, to see you and Claudine at 15 months since I've been to New York, by far the longest period of my lifetime. So it was it was just good to be there. Yeah, it was great to see you. Uh, great to see you in person and be able to talk about the podcast in person rather than just on the phone. Yeah, and we were also talking about the Boston 92 release, yes. which I think it, a little surprising how much it has lingered for me. It, it's a very good listen. Yeah, for me, too. I uh, obviously I'm a big fan of the of that material. I love I love that tour, but I've actually been surprised about how much I've, I keep listening to it over and over and over again. Even what's funny is that the the cheesy sense of Gloria's eyes is like one of my favorite parts. Oh, uh, that I can't admit to. <laughs> well, I have no problem admitting to that. And of course, the the three songs to open and then um, really enjoying real world. Uh, I, I know it's not the the version of it, but I think it's a very different song that, than it was at the Christic shows. And and I think it works on its own. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. And obviously, it's far superior to the recorded version, which <laughs> I don't think we need to bash that one again, but a, a terrible misfire. Needless to say, it's not the Christic version, but he, he brought elements of that into the version of Real World here. To me, the song that really stands out is Soul Driver, just because it's the only time I think we're going to hear in the archive series in its full band arrangement. And he did a really good job with it. It, it was fleshed out from earlier performances on the tour. And I love the opening guitar piece that he does. And it it just got a real interesting sound to it. There was something going on with Soul Driver, and we knew that from the Christic. Unfortunately, they didn't really get it on the record, but I think he got more of it here in, in the live version late in 92. I, I totally agree. And and I think the, the segue into Souls of the Departed is just, that's just perfect. That's two episodes in a row now we've talked about the 92 release. <laughs> now we can move on to something more recent. <laughs> just a little bit. Bruce winning the Woody Guthrie Prize and performing four songs, obviously virtually. He performed Guthrie's Jode. He did Deporte. I believe both of those were done for the first time since 1996. And then he followed that with Across the Border and his own Ghost of Tom Jode. Very nice performances, oh, but really it was something he said during the discussion <laughs> that has gotten everyone's attention. And that is a reference to an album that takes place in the West that will be coming out soon. For one thing, that sounds exactly like Western Stars, but 
clearly the man knows what he's talking about. And then <laughs> Western Stars was released two years ago. I don't think he forgot about it. So there is apparently another record that takes place in the Western part of the United States that is lined up to come out. What do you think about that? Well, there's what we know. We do know that there is another another album that he recorded at the same time as Tom Joad, the, the daytime sessions that I believe that's the one that uh, it was referred to in Brian Hyatt's book as being in the can. Yes. And, and we also know that he recorded about what, 30 to 40 more songs along with the, the, all, with the material that uh, appeared on Western stars. So that, so either one could fit, but we haven't heard any rumors about a, a new album coming out anytime soon. Yeah, uh, people who are generally well-briefed on these things were very surprised themselves, I think, at that comment. And there seems to be some confusion. Is he talking about a standalone record? Which, if it is one of the things that you're referring to, maybe has been elevated out of tracks to, because we know that's where the work has been going on, most likely, for, for that material. Or is he somehow referring to tracks to, which we do believe will contain unreleased albums, and he either slipped up or he phrased it in a strange way. And it's really an album that's going to be in the tracks to box, which we hope is coming again. <laughs> yeah. Third time's a charm, but you know, I, I'm not really, honestly, I don't buy that. You know, it's, uh, it's one disc of out of what, 10, 10 or so that would make up tracks too, as in a big box. See, I, I don't think that's how he would have referred to it. it. It didn't seem like that was what he was talking about. So it, it perhaps he did elevate. They're working on this material. Maybe he sat there and he said, this record right here, it should stand on its own. And, and that's what he's talking about. I, I think it would be weird though, if it's the daytime Joe sessions, that record would be 25 years old. And from all indications, there's going to likely be an E Street Band tour next year. Uh, Steve has said that. Bruce himself said he expected to be back on the road in 2022. We're hearing some rumblings about that. Why would he release a Jode-associated album right before the band was going on tour? It, 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 there's a lot that still needs to be ascertained here as to what's going on. Hopefully, they'll make an announcement soon. Hopefully. And I still think the, the next E Street tour, he's going to... He's really going to pull out a lot of the stuff from Letter to You and and not much from Western Star. So it really doesn't matter uh, if he releases a, a non-East Street album in the, in, the, uh, in the next six months or so before he goes on the road with the band, with the East Street band next year. I guess so. I mean, maybe because we're in such a strange period following COVID and people are going to be touring for records that are a year or two old. But in a traditional time, it seems to me that it would be very unusual to be planning an E Street tour and to release a Joad associated solo record right before that. But again, it we're in a very unusual time. Well, we don't know how Joad associated it really is though. It's it's could it's from that same era, but it doesn't have to be uh, necessarily more you know, more Balboa Park and Youngstowns and in the line it could be no something. but it's definitely not east street band oriented from what we know no. uh, uh tiger rose is that the name of the song tiger rose long time coming titles off the top of my head <laughs> it was long time coming on that record well it, if it was it ended up being on devils and dust so that's no longer apt right but what i'm saying is that type of material 
as we know, he never plays anything from Devils and Dust, really, with the band. No. That would not be what I would think would lead into an E Street Band tour. But again, we're in an unusual time, so we'll just have to see. And now, our main topic tonight is going to be, it's an interesting one considering the participants in this conversation, Hal actually produduces films, and I haven't seen a film in the theater since 2008. So we coming that is from so it, ridiculous. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Actually, I should say I haven't seen a non-Bruce related or not Hal produced film in a theater since 2008. Okay, well that's, that's at least appreciated. That's a little bit more accurate. But tonight we're talking with Caroline Madden. She's the author of Springsteen as Soundtrack: it's The Sound of the Boss in Film and Television. And in her book, she connects the Bruce Bruce's life, his career, his music with very specific films. Uh, welcome, Caroline, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I just described your book a little bit. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. My book takes a look at 13 films and television shows that, like you said, sort of contextualizes Bruce's life and his work within films and TV shows that use his music on the soundtrack. And I I wanted to have a very narrow focus on only a few films. Um, and, and each film or TV show uh, really focuses on like a specific um, theme in Bruce's life and work. So uh, for example, in country, that film is about Vietnam veterans. So I discuss a lot of, you know, Bruce's work with the Vietnam War and war in general. Um, and as another example, uh, Show Me a Hero, an HBO TV series, which not only uses his music uh, as sort of the backdrop for like everyday lives in New York, but using Bruce within that show speaks to his comments on race and just equality in America overall. I think you nailed that, and and I find the book very interesting for that reason. And and you took great examples. Show Me Heroes, in my opinion, one of the great pieces of work on TV in recent years. Of course, David Simon and the team he worked mm -hmm. with there is a, a their masters. And mm -hmm. uh, just as we get into your book, there's a couple of chapters in particular that we want to highlight because mm -hmm. they really do establish both from the perspective of Bruce's music and also how music works in cinema to, mm -hmm. to help support a film. I think you gave really good examples. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, that's, that was really the goal of my book, to show how soundtrack is just so much more than setting the scene or even background music. If you, you know, sit down and, and listen, um, you, can, you can find that a lot of the lyrics and the story of, of the songs themselves are really speaking towards the characters and the themes of a film, of the film as a whole. Oh, yeah, I can speak to this, of course, from our work and the amount of attention that goes into song placement in movies. Now, it's very challenging because mm -hmm. I'm not sure if people know this when you have a song in a movie. Basically, you need rights from two different aspects of the music. You need what's mm -hmm. known as a sync right, which is the publishing, and then you need the rights to the master, which is the actual track that goes in the movie. Sometimes, mm -hmm. as in the case with Bruce, those are controlled by the same people, and sometimes they're controlled by different people or different entities, and, and it's, it's very challenging. So sometimes the director 
will have a song that they're dying to put in the movie and they can't get the rights to it. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit because you provide one of the most famous examples of that as it relates to Bruce. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is Mask. Yes, uh, that Mask, uh, Peter Bogdanovich, he he really wanted a lot of Springsteen songs to be in the film. And what there was a lot of, you know, legal issues on Springsteen's side and with Universal. And what happened was uh, when like Bogdanovich went, the film was shot and he went on vacation. And when he came back from vacation, the studio had replaced all the songs with Bob Seger. And for, and that's how the film came out in theaters. And for the longest time, that's the only version that anyone saw. So it wasn't until like 2004, the director's cut on DVD, you finally got to see the film as uh, Bogdanovich uh, envisioned it. And that is with Bruce Springsteen's song. So the, the version of the film that we were seeing for decades was not what he wanted at all. And it's, it's very interesting to compare the two. Okay, let me ask a question on that one. So when the director went on vacation, when he left, mm-hmm. he, he was under the impression that Bruce's music was going to appear in the film, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, from from what I can recollect from my research, yeah, he he knew there was there were legal issues, and I believe his producers and just uh, <laughs> everyone involved, you know, were telling him like, you're probably not going to get Bruce's music, um, but he. But they didn't even consult him on which music they were going to replace Bruce with. So, yeah, that is highly (laughs) unusual, especially for a director (laughs) like Peter Bogdanovich, who is certainly a director of of major note. Right. Yeah. So he's a pretty high level director. Did so. I'm just surprised that he didn't totally confirm that he had Bruce's music before he put the film to bed. Yeah, I I can't recall the exact details, but I do know that he yeah, the the the, the decision for Bob Seeger was not initially his. I, I can address that because what happens is in these circumstances, he didn't have final cut apparently, and he was working with Universal. I believe it was Sid Sheinberg, who was a very, very powerful individual in Hollywood, and their budget considerations and all of these things that go into making these selections as well as thousands of other selections when you're making a movie. And sometimes you don't get what you want as a director. Now, this is a a very bizarre situation that the man went on vacation and they took the songs out and he came back Mm -hmm. and that was how the movie was. There's no question about it. It does really serve as an example as to how these things work. And I've had these conversations with directors. Now, there's something we like to refer to as as what we call temp love, where uh, uh, what happens is a lot of times when these movies are put together and an editor will place songs in that they feel are relevant or working in conjunction with the music supervisor and and the songs get placed and, and directors will watch the movie and and they fall in love with it even though now I work in the indie world so like it, it, some on my first movie the editor put Beatles songs into the movie and Ellie Canner my dear friend and dear work associate you know I, who directed three of my movies we would sit there and she'd be like oh I love this song and I'd be like it's the Beatles Ellie you know so you, you <laughs> No, you're not going to get the Beatles. But in this case, really, because of the and I want to talk more about this, because you really do lay out 
the differences in how the film is altered by taking out, say, Badlands and replacing it with Katmandu, uh, a fine <laughs> song, but a little different not, feel. Yeah, very, very different. Or, you know, that rock and roll never forgets replaces the promised land, which is really sort of the emotional conclusion mm-hmm. of the entire movie. Yeah, exactly. And like, I'm, you know, I, I do enjoy those Bob Seger songs, but it just, it does not have that same like narrative drive. And, and as I sort of explain in the book, um, the, the, the film of mask is about a boy, uh, with like facial, uh, just facial differences. And, uh, the, you know, the promised land and badlands there, the thesis of those songs, you know, is about like, just rising, rising above, um, ter- like turmoil in your life. And those are, those become Rocky's anthems. And without that, it's just with the Bob Seger songs, it, it just, it doesn't have that heart, frankly. And you were quite critical of the, of the original theater cut. And then very, I mean, you love the, the, the 2004 director's cut, uh, so it really worked for you. Yeah, and I don't even, you know, say that just as a Bruce fan. I I just think, you know, narratively, these songs communicate which what is like pretty much the fundamental thesis of of uh Bogdanovich's film, which is, you know, despite whatever hardships you have to just persevere. And that that's why Rocky's story is is so inspiring because he had every reason to be depressed or not care, care about life, but he, he did anyway. And he had such a, you know, bright spirit and those songs, you know, as I've said, they, they really communicate that. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you, Caroline. And, and it really does show how the right music cue, whether it's a song or a piece of score can impact the movie. And, and these are things you don't really think about when you're watching the film, but if it's right, it's right. And it adds a layer of emotion that is, is, is this is a perfect example, as you point out. I thought it was a good chapter to really like establish the importance of film film soundtracks and you know how how much more meaning you know they can they can have beyond just you know hearing hearing music what i thought you did a great job of doing was showing how it's not just to mute the music and the lyrics at the in the what you're hearing but all the other i I don't want to say baggage but all the stuff that kind of comes 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 to mind with it when you're hearing a specific song just adds that much more to the film yeah definitely like even just factoring in like who the artist is and what their life is and and that you know that was sort of the whole idea behind my book you know as I mentioned like it's it's not just you know oh it's a Bruce Springsteen song like what what does it mean to have you know what does it mean to include Bruce Springsteen in this film, like what, what else is the film trying to say by including this artist? And are there any, you know, connections beyond just the song, but, you know, within the artist's life's work and, and just personal biography. And like during my research process and just watching the films, it was just fascinating to like draw those 
all these like connections that you wouldn't even necessarily think of when you're first watching the film. But it, it again, it just goes to show that you know these these artistic choices are very purposeful. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, before we move on to any of the other chapters, I did want to get a little bit about your research process. How did you get into these topics? And and I believe it's been mentioned in your book. You spoke to John Landau. I well, I I spoke via email. <laughs> but, oh, that counts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was I was pleasantly surprised that you know I was able that he he was able to um, answer my questions. Uh, in terms of research process, um, I like, well, you know, I, I looked on Bruce's IMDb and tried, you know, tried to sort of assess um, what, what films would be worth watching. Like I did, I did watch others, but I, I knew that I wasn't going to, because uh, his music is in like over 200 films and TV shows. Um, so I knew that I was going to keep it pretty small, but um, yeah, I, so yeah, it was just a lot of, you know, watching films and just narrowing down, you know, what, what themes in Bruce's work that I wanted to talk about and then which film would sort of be the conduit for that. Oh, I, I think it's great that John spoke to you and, and several of his nuggets. I really enjoyed reading. He, he gave you good stuff. Now, speaking of films where Bruce, the artist, really complements the emotional center of the film, one of your chapters is on Philadelphia. Needless to say, Bruce won an Oscar for that film with his song, Streets of Philadelphia, directed by Jonathan Demme. I think this is one worth talking about. Absolutely. You, you relate in the book how Jonathan Demme, he recruited Bruce to do the song because he wanted he wanted to get a familiar a familiar face and voice to, mm-hmm. to to basically bring I mean to bring in Middle America to to see this book to see this movie rather about a gay man uh, dying dying of AIDS and did he did he he didn't really didn't get what he wanted. No, not at all. Uh, he he wanted a more like hard rocking, I think like a Neil Young esque uh, song. Um, and Bruce, he he you know obviously comes out with something you know far more quieter and and somber and and moving. Um, yeah, Demi wanted this also sort of plays into Tom Hanks's casting as well. Uh, as you said, like a, a very familiar, you know, masculine, just man's man. <laughs> um, some, like someone that, you know, middle America could identify and feel comfortable with. And, you know, that's why they cast Tom Hanks because he was the, you know, every man. So, yeah, in 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 terms of the song, uh, it's obviously you know a beautiful requiem for for those who have who experienced AIDS, who lost their lives, and it it really um, like echoes the film's ending, you know, which is heartbreaking. Yes. Um, and other other things that I talk about in that chapter is not while while Bruce does 
sort of embody the the American everyman, there are also some like queer aesthetics to his performances, to even some of his songs. There, there's a lot of scholarship out there um, about Bruce and and the queer community that. You know, I, if anyone's interested in that, uh, highly recommend reading. Uh, so yeah, I, I sort of use, use this chapter to explore, you know, Bruce's longstanding relationship with the LGBTQ community. Um, yeah. <laughs> I guess that does any of that come from the fact that a lot of Bruce's music is kind of written. He's, he, he's, he's an outsider. And that's yeah. how a lot of those in the gay community feel like, especially when they're young and they don't understand, they're, they're not really sure what's going on. Exactly. Like, yeah, like something like Backstreets or even I feel like out in the street, I I kind of get that vibe. Like it's, you know, when you're at work, you're, you're presenting yourself as someone else. But when you're out in the street and work's over, you can finally, you know, be who you are. Uh yeah, like characters who who are ex- experiencing this feeling of you know being marginalized and and yeah, as you said, like outsiders. I think that one of the beautiful things about the song is, as well as capturing everything that you're describing there. I don't know how many other songs from rock stars so carefully reflect on the experience of slipping away and dying i he yeah now, now i my mom died in 1990 of cancer uh, right before bruce had written this song of course unfortunately uh dave and barbara's daughter Kristen ann carr had passed away oh. from cancer it, it i am sure that that had a huge impact on him just as uh, my mother did on me because he he was very very close to Kristen, as we know. I mean, it strikes me, even though this is a movie about AIDS, you know, mm-hmm. you could so easily put these lyrics on to a character who is slowly losing a battle against cancer or, or so many other illnesses, and it really is it. it uh, w- it's one of his better written songs, certainly of the post. Born to Run, Born in the USA era, the classic era, as we like to call it. Uh, it, it, it it's, it's a remarkable piece of work. Yeah, it, it's absolutely just stunning and, and heart-wrenching. And I think also what you're saying about how, you know, it, the song grapples with death and, you know, that is a, you know, universal, you know, emotional uh, period, you know, in one's in our lives, you know, with families and friends. Um, and I think that also works to the song works to uh, what Demi's goal was, which is to have everyone, everyone relate to these characters who, who have AIDS and characters that people might be prejudiced towards. Bruce's song, when you, when you hear, you know, when you hear those, those just heartbreaking words, you can relate to it and you're relating to a character that has AIDS. And, and I think that just works towards, you know, breaking down those barriers for those who, who might be prejudiced towards uh, the, those, those who have AIDS, the gay community, et cetera. 
that universality definitely, uh, I think, connects it to people in a way that they otherwise wouldn't have expected. And that's what both I, I, Demi was trying to do with the movie and I think Bruce ultimately was trying to do with the song and, and they were both successful with it. You know, you, you look mm -hmm. at, at some of the lines in this song. I mean, especially they're the opening lines of the movie and they're the opening lines of the song. I was bruised and battered. I couldn't tell what I felt. I was unrecognizable to myself. It's just, mm -hmm. just so tremendously powerful. Yeah. Hey, Bruce does a does a great job of taking something. I mean, that's a huge feeling and he just put it so concisely and, and so precisely and summing everything up there. Mm -hmm. As we know, Bruce has done that in so many other instances on so many other topics, but again, just because of, of, of what this specific topic is and, and the character dying of AIDS and you think of, mm -hmm. there's a moment in the film where Demi uses Streets of Philadelphia score. It's really one of the lower mm -hmm. moments for the Hanks character, who Andrew Beckett. He's standing on a street corner and, there, and Demi uses Streets of Philadelphia score. And, and I, I think there's additional musicians on that that aren't on yeah. the main studio track, uh, Ornette Coleman and, and little Jimmy Scott. The, the power of that moment just helps tie everything together cinematically and also, for, I, I, I think for Bruce as an artist, I mean, like what Demi did there, it, it really highlights, as we were saying, I mean, the, just the sort of mastery that Bruce is, is expressing in these songs. Yes, that that I think is probably my favorite moment in the film. And especially the way it just holds on this like tight close up of Tom Hanks's face. And it it's just. It's just devastating, but the score—you know—the score is—it's—it's it's both haunting and beautiful at the same time. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a really powerful moment. All right, I have a question then, as a non-film person, you keep—you keep talking about a difference between a song and a score. Mm -hmm. How? Okay, so when it, when the film opens, that's a song, right? Well, yes, because a song is a song, and score is generally music composed to highlight the scene underneath that, you know, you're normally working with a composer. In this case, they took Bruce's actual song and turned it into a piece that was used for score. Now, one of the things that Caroline does very well in her book is to explain the difference between uh, diegetic and non-diegetic use of music, which is how a song appears in a scene. Uh, 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 Caroline, I won't steal your thunder if you want to talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so... Di diegetic music is when it's with within the narrative itself. So, for example, if I was a character in a film and I turned on the radio and a song started playing and I started dancing to it, it's within the story space. Um, and then non-diegetic would be the example that we've talked about uh, with Tom Hanks you know, coming out of the lawyer's office and Bruce's score starts playing. Andrew can't hear that score. It's outside of the story space. Okay, so diagenic means that the characters are actually hearing it themselves. Yep, and interacting with it. And and that, you know, uh, I talk about also, like, in my book, um, there that there's a significance when the characters themselves are interacting with Bruce Springsteen, like in, in mass. Like <laughs> yeah, Rocky, that's a really Rocky good point. Is, you know, like Rocky is a fan of Bruce. Um, 
Nick with Cisco and Show Me a Hero is a fan of Bruce. So it's like, what is what does that mean for the character? You know, why do they identify with Bruce? You know, what what sort of connection do they have with him and why? That was one of the biggest and kind of most intriguing things uh, in my book that I really enjoyed like writing about. Hi, I'm Hal Schwartz from None But The Brave, and I want to tell you about our exciting new sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid is a service for musicians that puts your music into online stores and streaming services like Spotify. You keep 100% of your royalties. The DistroKid app is packed with features. You can check your streaming stats from Apple and Spotify, upload lyrics and song credits. You can also get notified via push notifications when you've earned royalties. With Mixia, a powerful tool for those without access to professional mastering engineers, users can put the finishing touches on their track in minutes. There's a simple interface that is easy to use even if you're a novice creator. It's only $99 for a year with unlimited mastered tracks. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely. Send tracks to collaborators, booking agents, and anyone else you want to hear your work. Your music will stream at the highest quality so you can make a great impression. And the artwork files look great too. So check out DistroKid through None But The Brave's special link and receive 30% off your first year. DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Once again, DistroKid.com slash VIP slash MBTB. Thank you. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Now, when you talk about interacting... We have the, a great example of Bruce himself interacting with a character <laughs> in High Fidelity. Yeah, that yes. is. <laughs> Perfect segue there. And so yeah. he's actually talking to Bruce Springsteen. Yes. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen the film. Can you, uh, can you refresh me on this? Yeah, sure. Um, so John Cusack plays uh, Rob and Rob is like a huge music geek and he's also uh, going through a very painful breakup and he sort of, he imagines himself talking, well, he imagines Bruce <laughs> talking to him and giving him advice, uh, giving him advice to go and talk to his list of top five girlfriends <laughs> like the girlfriends that you know really did a number on him uh, <laughs> top five breakups at, of all time this is out of the mind of nick hornby yeah. i might add who, who of course <laughs> wrote the original novel true <laughs> yes and um this advice sort of stems from bobby jean and and um yeah, so say he, you know, he Bruce tells Rob, you know, he should go say good luck and goodbye to his former girlfriend. And what purpose does that does that do for for Rob? I don't. He's kind of not. He's an, the, he's an arrested adolescent, isn't he? Yeah. Well, of course, yeah. he's played by John Cusack. So. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, he definitely has like a Peter Pan 
complex. <laughs> Surprised they didn't name him Peter in the film. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, it, Bruce's appearance in that film is, is a lot of fun because when when he pops up and he, yeah, I love when he says, "You call, ask how they are, and see if they've forgiven you." <laughs> like, yeah, that's. <laughs> I I don't think that Rob. Uh, we know he ultimately concludes that he he thinks that they haven't forgiven him. <laughs> well, that's well, that's a. Isn't that a situation where it's actually the reverse, where he, he needs he needs to forgive them, not the other way around? Yeah, well, probably. Yeah. I mean, that's that's serious baggage he was carrying around. Uh, well, Bruce does throw in a, a little reference to Bobby Jean in there, where he says, uh, "Give him your final good luck, uh, goodbye, and move further Ooh. down the road." He even references a song that I don't think uh, maybe further <laughs> on up the road had been written at that point. I forget exactly when High Fidelity came out. Came out well. I remember he filmed it during the the, the Meadowlands run in '99. I forget exactly when. Okay, it came out. so he probably did have the song written yeah. by then. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, Rob's kind of he's like very kind of selfish and a bit misguided about women. <laughs> Do you think it was a faithful ad- ad- adaptation of the book? Because I I don't I read the book way before I saw the movie, and I don't remember some of that kind of attitude coming off of Rob that I got from the, in the book. Well, Bruce played a very important role in the book as well. I mean, I, I think that that was one of the reasons why they, they tried to get him in the film, but I, that's a movie and some people love it. It's not, and we're going to talk about another movie uh, be, from a filmmaker, Cameron Crowe, who's uh, has made several movies. I think that would be in the same sort of, line of high fidelity including one that starred john cusack say anything Uh, to me high fidelity never really hit the levels of the book maybe i was biased because of course i loved the book so much before i saw it Mm -hmm. but even with bruce's participation i I, and stephen frears is an amazing director but i i just high fidelity never really grabbed me in the way uh some of those other movies i just mentioned did. but that's just me yeah i I love Nick Hornby. I love his work. I I can't recall if I've actually read the High Fidelity book, but yeah, I as you've sort of said, I High Fidelity doesn't really grab me as much as some of his other work. I, I do also want to say there is a musical stage version of High Fidelity, and they have a song uh, sung by like a a Bruce. Uh, it's called, I think it's called Goodbye and Good Luck. Uh, it's really funny. So you should check it out on YouTube. It's, it's, it's quite comical. <laughs> I, I did not know that. I will have to check that out. Yeah, it, it's awesome. <laughs> Does he sound Bruce-esque? I mean. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, very overdone. And, and <laughs> but it's, it's, it's funny. It's, it's a really good parody. Is it meant to be funny? I, yeah, I. I think it is. They 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 have like a, an actual clip of someone performing it too. You know, it's it, it's definitely I think a little bit like the Halloween kind of version of Bruce, but I, I got a kick <laughs> out of it. Okay. Well, sometimes things things can be funny, but they weren't intended to be that way. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's. I think it's kind of tongue in cheek. Okay. <laughs> We should also mention, of course, that High Fidelity does feature some Springsteen music. I think probably most notably the river, which mm-hmm. is is used. Uh, I, he, Rob is playing that. That's that's a diegetic use. He puts it. Uh, he puts it on the turntable, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
And that was back before vinyl was cool again. Yeah, well, of course, that was the whole movie. I mean, they're, they're working in this music store, and and he's a little, as you're saying, he's a little Peter Panish, and and at the time, he's a little out of touch. You know, he's hiding behind the music. That that was the appeal of the book and the appeal of the movie. So, <laughs> yeah, well, it didn't really hit didn't hit fully, but I think the the fact that he was such an avid music fan and snob certainly uh, struck home for a lot of people. So especially in our in our little community. Oh, yeah, I think that's safe to say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's move on and, and talk about one that is a little bit more serious. And you just brought the subject of this series up. Nick Wasisco, Show mm-hmm. Me a Hero, which was the HBO series created by David Simon. And this is mm-hmm. one of the most. I, I would say I would use the word magnificent uses of Bruce's music and and he's used throughout the series. Now the series wraps up and I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but lift mm-hmm. me up who of course had also been used in an earlier John sales film is mm-hmm. used over the final series and montage of show me a hero to uh, just utterly devastating impact. It's such a beautiful and, and powerful show and, Yes, that ending, it, it really, it just blew me away. Um, it blew me away, too. And, yeah. I I don't really hear of a lot of people, or rather, I don't I don't know a lot of people who have actually seen Show Me a Hero, so it, it's nice to hear that you guys enjoyed it. Uh, I, I think it's a very, like, yeah, like, underrated series. Uh, he's the same guy who did The Wire, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, David Simon. I believe the entire Show Me a Hero series was directed by Paul Haggis. Am I remembering that properly? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, these are major, major filmmakers working on this. And the story is so tied to Bruce, his entire body of work. I mean, and of course, he was a fan of Bruce in real life. But the way they use the music in the, in the series, I, I, you made a point, Caroline, about how it's all about unity and inclusion and a common humanity, which needless to say is a major theme of <laughs> Bruce's music his entire career. Uh, uh, American Skin, which was written on a similar topic because this mm-hmm. this series is about the uh, segregation that was going on in Yonkers and the mayor's attempt to to create public housing and and provide people with a safe place to live and and a place where they could raise their children. And there was just tremendous pushback from a certain segment of the community. Every selection here is dead on, uh, you know, from the uh, how many Bruce songs are there, four or five hundred songs. I mean, this is a series that opens (laughs) with gave it a name. I know. Oh, I love it. (laughs) I just I love that uh, intro. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> no, go ahead. You're right. I mean, you you make the point in the book. I mean, and it's not like the, they're opening with Born to Run there. It gave it a name <laughs> is about a, a, as obscure a Springsteen song as you can get. But they, they brought out the power of the lyrics in such a way. Mm-hmm. It just sets the whole show up. And, you know, then they paid it off at the end with, uh, with Lift Me Up. Oh, yeah. I I think what the show does really well is or the song selections do really well is really grounding you in, in the emotional arc of, of Nick, uh, because the show, you know, while it's dealing with very impactful themes, there's, 
you know, a lot of it is kind of, you know, it's about like housing zones and, you know, some of that stuff can, you know, maybe seem a little, I don't want to say dry, but it it's very like bureaucratic and, but Bruce's music just helps you help brings out the the human side of the story you know how these were just everyday americans um you know with families just trying to have you know as he you know every as he sings in hungry heart everybody wants to have a home that's literally what this entire (laughs) series is about uh, that's that's a great point, and and so on target with that one line. It it, it really does bring it out. And I, one of the things I, I highlighted a section from your book, especially about "Lift Me Up," that you wrote the ethereal and transcendent "Lift Me Up" operates as an elegy for the loss of Nick's promising young life, and I, you put that so powerfully. And 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 it, that is exactly how the song is used there. And and I think the use here. Uh, was even better than the, the the actual movie was written for. I agree. <laughs> yeah, it, it's such a. It really, honestly, like floored me. It was such a a power powerful moment. It, it, well, it's a powerful moment also because, of course, you've got this thirty four year old man who had yeah. such promise and had taken on this battle and yeah. lost the battle, and then he. He he. Unfortunately, he takes his own life, unable to live with with the impact of that. I think, and everything that he's been to. Yeah. Well, well, I I I don't know what to say about that, Flynn. I mean, we're talking about the thing. I read Caroline's quote. I apologize to anyone out there if it's a spoiler. First of all, this is a true life story. That's well, I wouldn't say it's well known, but people know the what happened. So I I don't know. I mean, I apologize. This is whether or not you know that he dies at the end. Uh, this is television that is truly worth watching. And for anyone out there who, who hasn't seen it, I I highly recommend you go on HBO Max and watch it. Now I haven't seen it. I got to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. But from what when the impression I got from from reading the book is that almost like he could he didn't know what to do with himself after he lost after he lost this battle and he felt yeah. That, I mean, I guess that was the whole that part of the whole point. Of, yeah, of, and of he the didn't, show anyway. Yes, absolutely. And he didn't like just, he didn't earn the recognition that he deserved. Like everything, it, it just sort of got swept under the rug. And you know, he had been so ambitious. He was such an ambitious person, and then to you know to have the success, and then just suddenly be you know, kind of ignored uh, what was devastating to him. It's a, it's a very sad story. It's actually, it's, it's so relevant today because of, of course, unfortunately, what has taken place in the country the last 12 months. But again, it just check it out. We won't, we won't ruin it anymore or spoil it anymore. (laughs) This is it, it. If you like the wire and you like Bruce, and we know a lot of the people who are out there like both of those things. If you haven't seen this, just seriously, check it out. I haven't seen it. And it sounds like it's a very powerful story. And, and the way Carolyn describes the use of Bruce's music in it, it's something that I, that I definitely need, need to check out. Um, now, shifting gears a little bit to another HBO show, uh, The Sopranos, where Bruce's State Trooper was used at the end of the season finale from season one, 
over the closing credits. Um, mm-hmm. And and you you really talk talk a lot in the book about how it the character in that song parallels Tony Soprano. Yeah, I. I was actually like a little surprised at all the kind of parallels that I found. I think this is a good example of how, you know, one, one song at the end of an episode can kind of encapsulate an entire season. Um, And uh, as I also discussed, there's like, there's a callback uh, in the series finale to the season one finale. So I write a little bit about that as well. Uh, But I wanted to mainly focus on just season one since, you know, I, I I couldn't, I couldn't do the entire show or else it would be a very long chapter. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I do a whole book on uh, that. I know you really could. You could write Um, a whole book on that. Yeah. (laughs) That would be awesome. What I found, I guess, the main discussion points that I found uh, within State Trooper and The Sopranos um, for Tony, uh, the protagonist of State Trooper, you know, obviously he's dealing with depression. He's on the run from the law. Um, I also talk a little bit about New Jersey itself, you know, as it is referenced in the song. And then obviously, the show takes place in New Jersey. And I also talk a little bit about um, the Asbury Park scenes in the episode Funhouse. So that was really fun to like watch and analyze. Um, oh, and uh, I also discuss a, a bit about uh, like Tony's like childhood, his past, and how that also kind of relates to the Nebraska album as well. You made a point that really made me think, wow, and it was related to the placement of the song in the season finale from season one over the credits about how it anticipates and foreshadows what's going to happen in season two and and even beyond that. And and Chase is a master of using music. Steve has actually talked about this a lot on Twitter. But mm-hmm. when it, when I read that, I was like, you know, She's 100% right. That song really does tell you much about Tony's arc as we move forward into the heart of the series. And what's amazing is that it it just goes to show how well planned that was, that that Chase, A, really knew where the series was going, and B, that he, he could pick a song like that that sort of secretly foretold what was to come. It's incredible. I, I I loved reading about David Chase's um, like process and his real he he does he has a real affinity for just using soundtrack and uh, you know obviously we see that throughout the show but it was interesting to read about like he he used to like watch he was like I think. I don't know if I'm going to get the story exactly right, but he was like, have he would have the TV on mute and like play other music and see how that the music from the record player would like change the images he saw on screen. So he, you know, he, that he was just always sort of toying with this unique relationship between the moving image and sound. And I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that that's amazing. And 
One of the other things you wrote about The Sopranos, which wasn't directly about the use of Bruce's music, but I loved how you mentioned in college, which is one of the famous episodes where we, we really first mm-hmm. see the true evil Tony uh, and how two faces, you know, which again is another universal song, basically a Jekyll and Hyde. But but I love what you wrote there about that, that that whole sort of episode uh, evokes that that there's a darker half in, in Tony. And, and, and I think in Bruce's song, he's really evoking that there's a darker half perhaps in all of us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think that's also why it's so interesting that, you know, Chase included a song from the, from Nebraska, because obviously, you know, it's dealing with such, you know, at times very nihilistic and, you know, somewhat, these these criminal you know characters but at you know while they may be criminals they're also you know they're still they're still humans and they're still you know grappling with you know emotional turmoil so i i really found that there was uh there was a lot that the the sopranos was very you know rich in this like intertextual relationship with bruce's music i there was there was so much to to write about and discuss like I as I said before like I probably could have you know gone on to look at other seasons too and how how Bruce's work maybe impacts that as well it's, there it's was actually, a lot to unpack <laughs> it's actually kind of amazing that over the seven seasons of the Sopranos there was only one Bruce song yeah I, I, know. I kept thinking you know they're going to use something different or not something different but use another song at some point because I mean, between all the, the, there are so many connections between Bruce and the Sopranos that just surprising. Yeah. I, of course, and I always liked the fact that I forget, I guess it was uh, Christopher's character opened a, a bar down the shore and he called it the Rock Horse. Uh, that, that always cracked me up. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> so, when you actually saw the Sopranos, huh? I did, yeah, actually. But that was, you know, it, it ended a long time ago. So, that was back when I was still watching television. Or still watching quality television. Now I just watch reruns and stuff. <laughs> now, now, Carolyn, uh, before we part, and you have been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. This, I've really enjoyed this. Can we ask you about one movie that wasn't in your book? And, of course, that's going to be one of my personal favorites because I'm the host of the show. Sure. Uh, that, that would be Bruce's music as used in Jerry Maguire, which, in oh. my opinion... It's obviously not as serious a movie as a topic of something like Show Me a Hero or some of the other movies we've discussed in country. But if I was asked for one perfect use of Bruce's music, it's going to be the use of Secret Garden in Jerry Maguire. Uh, Cameron Crow, of course, also a master of using music in his films. And he had Danny Bramson, who was the music supervisor on that movie. D- did you look at, at Jerry Maguire at all uh, in, in researching your book? I did. And I absolutely, I love Jerry Maguire. It's one of my favorite movies. And I was very sad. I, I wanted to include it in my book. And I, I also love that moment. I think it's, it's just so beautiful and perfect. And I love it, <laughs> but I just couldn't, I, I didn't have anything. I mean, I'm, I'm sure of course there's something there, you know, there that I could talk about, but I, I was already covering um, Bruce's, you know, masculinity and, and 
uh, Bruce's depiction of women. You know, I talk about that in High Fidelity and uh, Edward Burns' No Looking Back. So I really, I felt like I had those topics covered. So sadly, I wasn't going to include Jerry Maguire, but in short, I love it. And, and yeah, yeah, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, there is, there is a moment in that scene when after Ray, the kid, kisses Jerry and Renee Zellweger's character, Dorothy, is falling apart and the music starts and... Mm-hmm. There's a scene on the street where Bonnie Hunt, as she walks away, says, oh, dear. And then mm-hmm. the first verse starts. It's just absolute perfection. <laughs> yeah. hey, uh, Jerry Maguire is one of, literally one of my top movies of all time. But uh, Cameron Crowe, who also, of course, directed Almost Famous, another of my favorite films. But uh, just that moment on the street when they're standing across from one another, it, 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 oh. it doesn't have the cultural... <laughs> It doesn't have the cultural impact of something, say, like race relations or something like that. But in, in terms of romance and 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 I think that Bruce, we, we don't really talk about that aspect of his music mm-hmm. as much these days. The romantic aspect of it. And and boy, yeah. did Crow capture it right there. Yeah, I, I a thousand percent agree. Um, and yeah, like even as you're like, I can picture it in my head. Like, that's so that's how like well ingrained it is and just what a what a great moment i can i can see them in the street and the lights and oh it's it's really really wonderful yeah it's cinema perfection i mean it really is (laughs) it it makes me want to watch it again i watch that movie frequently (laughs) (laughs) all right well caroline i I have one very specific question for you yeah Um, (laughs) in your discussion of in country when you when you're talking about vietnam you yes. say that you say that the song "Nothing Man" was mm-hmm. originally inspired by a Vietnam veteran. Yes. Where Where did you get that? I I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> Flynn has been like, talking about this all week since we knew you were coming on. He was like, Caroline says in the book that "Nothing Man" is inspired by a Vietnam vet. We got to find out how that is. <laughs> yeah. No. I. God. I feel like a bad author now. Like I. I, I'm trying to remember. I know I read it somewhere. I I just don't remember where. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I will I will have to dig through my research because I I don't recall, but I do remember reading that. Okay. In one of my sources. <laughs> okay, because well, it, 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 it makes sense in a way. It does. It definitely fits. It fits a hundred percent. Especially, I mean, you back it up by saying. The guys at Al's Barbecue act like nothing's changed, and that's kind of how America was trying to be about Vietnam. Yeah, like I I remember when I first when I first read that, I was like, oh, that's interesting because you know it does it does work obviously really well, really beautifully on the rise thing, you know about about a fireman or some sort of rescue worker, but putting it in the context of Vietnam, I was like, oh yeah, this really this fits really well and um, I, yeah no go on no i was just gonna say i i just i i can't recall exactly what book i read that in okay because it, yeah. it was interesting because i mean if it if he had written it in like 1983 or something i, I yeah I totally like yeah that's totally you know I, I get that but it's from it's supposedly it's from 90 it's from 94-esque 94-ish yeah i was gonna say i thought i believe it was from 94 
It's on whatever um, album, you know, whatever sessions that he was doing around, around the streets of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. That's really one of the interesting aspects of that song, because, of course, as used on The Rising, if someone had said it was written in 2001 or, or really 2002, you would think that it was definitely about 9-11. Right. Yeah, that's one of these things where it's there's so many interpretations and they can, all of them can be right. Yeah, absolutely. I just, just speaks to Bruce's, uh, you know, universality of of everything yeah well tying it back to where we started just think of streets of philadelphia and and what we were saying of course we know it's about a a man dying of aids but it's also so universal to people who are looking in that mirror and knowing that their life is slipping away it's it's just just, as we said it's just tremendously powerful Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and i think you know that's sort of that's sort of why I assembled the the films that I did in my book. Um, just the how I wanted to show, you know, how Bruce is is illustrating these American lives and and these diverse American lives. Um, how he speaks, he he may speak very specifically, but by doing that, he speaks to everyone. Well, you did a great job, and and we highly recommend the book. We hope people are going to pick it up if they haven't already read it. And, and we thank you so much for joining us tonight. This is this has really been a treat. Yes, thank you very much. Um, Spring singing a soundtrack can be, I mean, or, order from Backstreet's Records if if you if you get a chance. Yeah, signed copies on Backstreet. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I have. I have, a, I have a signed copy. I like it. Well, uh, so I have it on my Kindle, uh, so I can I can read it anywhere. <laughs> That's the beauty <laughs> of the Kindle. That's true. <laughs> true. So thank you again for coming on. We've had a great time talking with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it was our pleasure. Thank you so much, Caroline. Once again, that was Caroline Madden, author of the book Springsteen as Soundtrack. That was a that was a very fun conversation, Hal. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Of course, that's a topic that <laughs> is near and dear to my heart, but very enjoyable. We thank Caroline for coming on. Yes. And I don't want to be too much of a tease, but we'll have some other special guests coming up in about a month. I think this is going to be pretty cool for people. We're not going to say any more yet, but uh, be on the lookout for for further word on that. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a fun one. Well, you do often say that the next episode is going to be a fun one, but in this case... I think it's going to live up to the hype. <laughs> well, I think they're the all f- too. They're all fun, but uh, yeah, this one's going to have a little extra, extra something special. That's it for tonight's episode. Let's do our little spiel here at the end. None but the bravest presentation of Bull Market Entertainment and soon to be a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you want to interact with us, please find us online on Twitter. We're at NBTB Podcast. Our website is nonebutthebravepodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thank you again to Caroline Madden, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast.